as I was beginning preparation for Exodus uh, some months ago and considering it, and then this week again in preparation for this particular section, one of the commentaries that I was reading said that there's really no way that modern man, contemporary readers and hearers of this story can apply specifically the plagues. And while I get what he was saying, we're in a different time frame in the redemptive history of God, nevertheless, it was like throwing down the gauntlet in front of me. And I thought to myself, no, 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 that, that cannot be the answer. Whatever else we're saying here, there is application that we have from this story. To be sure, when we consider the plagues, we must, as we have done with all of the parts of Exodus to this part, point and, and Genesis as well, we have to understand what is taking place here within the context of the historical, redemptive, covenantal work of God. God is revealing himself and his purposes. As we have seen, we are early in the book of God's revelation. And so we trace this and try to understand what God is doing here at this particular time in Exodus with the Egyptians, with Pharaoh, and with the Israelites. But will you join with me in being troubled by the so what of this passage today? What difference does it make to us? Allow me to do it this way. Allow me to consider briefly this passage or these chapters and sections of Scripture here in their historical context, looking at them for what is going on here and what God is communicating within this text. And then I actually want to spend the bulk of our sermon today applying this and wrestling with the implications of it on our lives. The battle is set before us. The pharaohs have done their worst over the generations. They have enslaved the people of God. They have oppressed the people of God. They have sucked the life out of the people of God. As Scripture phrases it, they've, they've taken the breath away of the people of God. And as we have seen, they've attempted to thwart all of the purposes of God, all of the creational ordinances of God. The pharaohs will not allow the people to go and worship as God is commanding. The pharaohs do not want to see the people of God multiply and go and be fruitful and fill the earth. They want them to be kept in their service in Egypt. They don't want them to multiply to the extent that they'll kill the infant children, or at least attempt to kill the infant children, to stop that multiplication from taking place. The pharaohs stand against the covenant purposes of God, the, the intention of God to take his people out they are opposed to that. All throughout this time, for now nearly 400 years, God has quietly done two things. He has quietly protected his people and multiplied them. As he said he would, that's exactly what he has done. But now, God is no longer quiet. The time has come. Judgment time has arrived and God takes the offensive in this battle. Scripture is never dismissive regarding the enemies of God and the pain that can be inflicted by the enemies of God. The battle is real. The casualties will be real. The power 
is real, the power that stands in opposition to God. Sometimes Christians are troubled when they see that the magicians of Egypt were able to reproduce at least the first two of the plagues, the blood and the frogs. And if we went back to last week, the precursor to the plagues, the Egyptian magicians were able to replicate, duplicate the transformation of the staff into the serpents, albeit with uh, Aaron's staff swallowing up theirs, but nevertheless, they were able to do it. There's real power. Scripture doesn't try to say that was a trick, it was an illusion. This is power against power. People can, and they have, killed and oppressed the people of God. It's not imaginary, it's not an illusion, it's not hypothetical. It has taken place throughout history, and their names, titles, can be Pharaoh or Janus and Jambres, not mentioned by name as the magicians, or the chief at least of the magicians of the Egyptians, but nevertheless, Paul knows their names from extra-biblical literature and refers to them as such in Timothy. Their names might be Nebuchadnezzar, or Herod, or Pilate, or Saul of Tarsus, or Nero. We must realize, though, that as we look at these people or positions that have stood in opposition to the people of God throughout all of the ages on up to our day as well are evidence clearly of a broader battle that is taking place. This is the clear understanding of Scripture. Paul says it most clearly, for we do not battle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are earthly contests, earthly manifestations of a spiritual war that is taking place. And in that war, even angels, I'm not going to turn to it nor quote from it exactly, but the book of Jude, Even angels recognize the power of wickedness so that Michael, the archangel, would not directly rebuke Satan himself, but said, in the name of the Lord, you be rebuked. Why? Because he recognized the power that Satan had even when battling Michael, the archangel. Moses versus Pharaoh is real. It's historic. It took place, but it is emblematic of a spiritual battle that is taking place. It's both then, it's ongoing now, and as we see in the book of Revelation, it is a future battle that will take place also. As we saw as we looked at uh, the book of Daniel in Sunday school over the past few months, it is a battle that is taking place now. It's a battle that is always taking place and always unseen, or usually unseen, by us. But nevertheless, it is the perspective of Scripture. But while Scripture carefully takes the time to affirm the fact that God's enemies are awful, that they have indeed real power, and they can inflict real pain, it 
declares unequivocally that the final authority and the final power rests with Yahweh alone, with God alone. The plagues are the defeat of Pharaoh, and really it's not even close. Now, the magicians are able to replicate, duplicate those first two plagues. But at the third, they are stymied. Now, commentators get into different reasons why they might have been stymied by the third. This was the plague of the gnats or the mosquitoes was the third. But at that point, they are unable to do it. And they point to the fact that we're matched up against somebody with whom we cannot compete. This is the finger of God or this is the finger of a God. Somebody is up against us and we are outmatched. They're rendered powerless. They are disarmed. The plagues are designed to show us that Israel's covenant rescuing God, the God who is going to buy his covenant and because of his covenant take them out of Egypt, is in fact the God who is the creator of this world with authority over all things, with authority over water, over life, land, air, amphibious creatures, swarming creatures, weather, light, and dark. No gods, no supposed gods are able to stand before him. No elements can exist outside of his control. He will take creation's good purposes, he the creator of creation, and he will turn them around and now use them in judgment. The very things that he has created as good in and of themselves and for mankind now become deliberately taken as that by which God will judge the Egyptians and bring these plagues that sound so creational to bear against them. God will use creation in chaos to recreate his people. Out of the judgment, God is going to bring life. Let me read another section for us from chapter 8. This is in the fourth plague, the flies, uh, 20 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. In the midst of this colossal and seemingly out-of-control, chaotic judgment, this creational upheaval, he, God, has the ability to make a distinction, to draw a line, to say that within the midst of the earth, I've got a garden, Goshen. And where that garden is, 
This plague shall not come. I make this distinction to demonstrate his undeserved mercy. Here we've got to borrow a lesson both from the book of Exodus as it will develop over the next few weeks, a few chapters, but also from Deuteronomy and from the rest of Scripture. We cannot ever make the mistake, let's just say this clearly, of thinking that the Israelites earned their protection, that they deserved this protection, this distinction from God. In fact, they didn't. But it signs and it signifies the grace of God, the covenant love of God on this particular people gathered into that particular place. God made Goshen a safe place. It anticipated things that would come to be known as cities of refuge, a place where those who are guilty could run or those who are accused at least could run and find safety. It is a hiding place within the shelter of the wing of God. But as we will see, the cost of establishing this safe house was blood. It was life that was going to be the cost. The judgment of God is terrible, and it is presented as terrible throughout. Listen to this verse from chapter 10, verse 21. This is in the ninth plague. I find it to be one of the most haunting phrases. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I mean, even, even we in our lives at various points of deep darkness have felt darkness. What must this darkness have felt like? when God uses such a term to describe the judgment that he is bringing. But of course, it gets worse. And while no one wants to read this, I'm going to read for us the last plague, beginning in chapter 11 at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from, the, from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up at, in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said to them, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. That great cry, that wail from Egypt on that night, has to be up there with one of the worst moments in biblical history. The death of all of the firstborn of the land. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what Hebrews says. Now, next week, we'll talk about the Passover. But that's it for now. We've got the plagues set before us. What do we do with this? I know that there's more we could talk about. I know we could talk about why sometimes do we use uh, Aaron's staff, why sometimes no staff, then Moses' staff later on. What about Moses and Aaron? What roles are they functioning here as they interact with Pharaoh? We could talk more even than we did last week about Pharaoh's increasing hardening and the responsibility of God for the increase of that hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We could talk about the way Pharaoh tries to negotiate the pseudo-repentance that he offers along the way, but this is enough. It's enough for us to set the stage and say, what is the point of all of this? How do we respond to it? Because clearly, clearly the plagues are didactic, which is to say they intend to teach. They were specifically given in order to teach the people of God, and they were not only to teach the people of that generation, but as we have seen, we considered this a couple of weeks ago, and as we'll see over and over again, they are a multi-generational teaching tool. What are we supposed to learn from them? Here's, here's the evidence of the teaching, chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, God speaking to Pharaoh, for by now I could have put you I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Remember, this is what we said last week. God could have done all of this in one fell swoop. That's what this statement is. God saying, listen, I could have given you a pestilence, and this would have all been over. The Israelites would have woken up one morning, and all the Egyptians would have been dead. It didn't take me 10 to do this. I've done this on purpose. Why am I doing it on purpose? Why am I doing it this way? To teach you so that you'll know that I am the Lord. And then in later reflection on the plagues, not reflections merely for Egyptians, but reflection, reflect, excuse me, reflections for the Israelites themselves, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, we're supposed to learn from these things. The people of God are supposed to learn from the plagues as well. So you ready? You can write these down if you'd like to. Don't worry. These are not going to be as long as they're going to sound when I first say them. I'm going to give you eight lessons. Takeaways. Number one, we should allow our perception of who God is to be challenged by this section of Scripture. God is showing His power, His wrath, and justice so that we might know that He is the Lord. Now, this is certainly not an original thought with me, but if an error 
of the medieval church was to overemphasize the justice, the wrath of God, and a coming judgment. Then, the error of our generation, our culture in particular, is exactly the opposite of that. We make God according to our preferences, making him out to be tolerant, nice, welcoming, easily acceptable, and accepting, and comprehensible by us. This passage should cause us to pause. This passage should stop us in our tracks with regard to who we think God really is. He is other than we are. And the call of Scripture is when you approach this God, you have to approach him with reverence and awe. Because though he may be good, to quote well-worn phrases from Lewis, he's not safe. He is not safe. Lesson two, do not dismiss the judgment of God. Do not presume on the kindness of God. This is from the Romans 2 passage that we considered last week. Do not take the delay of the judgment of God to be a statement that the judgment of God is not coming. We are warned over and over in Scripture not to allow this time of pause by God in the execution of His wrath to make us think that it won't happen. Do not count on your family's name to avoid a coming judgment. God shows no partiality. He shows a distinction, but no partiality. And that is Paul's point in Romans chapter 2, no partiality. Listen to this very carefully. We think Exodus plagues Egypt. In just a few chapters, the people of Israel will be the objects of the plague. And they will come against the people of Israel. Why? Because God shows no partiality. Judgment is real. Revelation takes up the theme of this coming judgment. It takes up the language, the imagery of the Exodus to say that this Exodus, as bad as it may have been, this cry as unimaginable as it would be to us in the middle of the night, is but a foretaste, but a down payment on a greater judgment when the bowls of the wrath of God are poured out upon humanity. It, therefore, is a warning. God's justice will be executed. Three, do not make the mistake, and this this is a negative application, do not make the mistake of thinking that you can attribute causality to every bad thing that happens in this world, every every disaster that befalls our world, whether it be globally, nationally, or personally. This is a unique time in the history of God's people. It is not the way God typically works. And in this unique time, we have the great prophet Moses declaring for us exactly what God is saying and what God is doing. Therefore, we can't do the same. 
we can't look at any plague that takes place or any natural disaster that takes place and speak with any kind of authority about what God is doing and why God is doing a particular thing. Don't make that mistake with this passage. Number four, respond to the plagues with humility. 10, chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? What does it take? You hard-hearted knucklehead? Now, let's not play here with the, the, the various hardening things that are going on. It's tough. That's an interesting timing. In any case, in any case, the call from this passage and from these plagues is to humility. It is a humility before the Lord that needs to lead us as the people of God to repentance. That's what should be taking place when these judgments of God are leveled. The source of this repentance is a softened heart. And therefore we pray. We plead to God, soften our hearts. In and of itself, it is hard. God, soften it and keep it soft. Keep it from growing hard and callousing. Number five, be an intercessor. Moses and Aaron prayed to God on behalf of Pharaoh for Egypt, for an ending of the plagues, and for Israel. They were functioning in anticipation, anticipation of Jesus Christ, who is the great mediator between God and man. That's unique for them. They were anticipating Christ, and they had a unique role to play in redemptive history. But still, but still, the lesson for us as the people of God is pray. Pray for those who are in authority, is the way the New Testament puts the injunction for emperors, for pharaohs, for presidents, for your boss, for your teachers. Pray for those who are in authority, for our kids, for the lost, for the nations, for all. Number six, obey. Pharaoh, to put it very simply, in children's Sunday school language, would not obey. At the bottom, at the end of the day, at the end of the line, God said, do this, and he would not do it. After rehearsing the story of the plagues in some detail, and then the Exodus as well, Psalm 105 comes down to this. Why did that all take place? That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. God's saying, Warning, do not disobey me. Obey what I am saying. Now, the threat of judgment is not sufficient in and of itself to be a motivation or the only motivation for our obedience. That said, it is a motivation, the desire not to be judged. It is something that you and I can take hold of when we are tempted and consider for just a moment, if we have the wherewithal in that moment to consider it and to say, do I really want the judgment of God to be upon me for whatever act, word, thought that I am about to have or about to do and commit? 
it is reasonable to consider the judgment of God in consideration of our own obedience. So obey. Number seven, we all know that obedience is a road that is strewn with casualties. Obedience cannot be ultimately the place wherein we fix our hope because it is not a firm place to stand. And therefore, get to Goshen. Get to Goshen. Don't negotiate. Don't take time to take pictures of the coming tornado or to shake your fist at the coming tornado or to stand in front of the tornado and say, wow, get in the basement. Get to safety, which of course is to say in New Testament terms, get ye to Jesus. You've got to get to the one who bore in his body and in his soul the full wrath of God, who took the bowls, the seals, the trumpets, the plagues, all upon himself, who in darkness was cut off from the land of the living in the midst of earthquakes taking place, and who bore it, who bore it for his people. He was the firstborn son, and he was not spared. The obedient one, his blood has paid for your safety. I know we're anticipating next week. You cannot weather the storm clouds of the wrath of God. Go to Jesus. That is the biblical story. Finally, number eight, the whole point of the Exodus is to get you here. You can use it about all sorts of things. You can use it to talk about morals and ethics. You can learn particular lessons about obedience from the plagues. You can learn as well about theology. You can learn that God is the Lord and what is the nature of a redeeming God, of a creating God. You can consider theodicy and whether or not God is fair or just given his judgments and evil in the world. You can take this passage and study, study homardiology and sin and look at the complexities of sin. You can consider the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of providence and election. But at the end of the day, you can do all that with these passages, and some of them we've done. At the end of the day, the purpose of the plagues is the purpose of Exodus, and it is doxological. The purpose is to get us singing. This gathering is not frivolous. It is not a baseball game. It is not a coffee shop gathering. It is not the normal work that we do. You are not out right now playing golf. You're not kicking back, enjoying the sunshine yet. But it wasn't easy or cheap to get you 
and me here. It was a plan being worked by God from before the foundation of the world and even in this passage right here, even in the depths of the plagues, God has a point. And the point is to get us together to fill not only Goshen, not only the wilderness outside of Egypt, and not only, of course, the land of Israel. The plan is to get the world singing. To gather up the people of God in these safe houses called the Church of Jesus Christ, which sometimes in actuality doesn't seem so safe, but in the hands of God is the only safe place. And so when we come and we sing the doxology, this is the purpose of the plagues. What does God want? Let my people go that they may serve me. And the word for serve is the word for worship, so don't get confused. What God wants is worship. So praise the Lord. That's the application of the plagues. Praise ye the Lord, the God of holiness and of power that is seen even in the plagues. Let's pray.